right, good, good, good. Well, we're going to continue uh, to worship the Lord through studying these scriptures. If you're here with us or joining us by live stream, if you have your Bible or have a Bible, be it paper or digital, take out your Bible, turn on your Bible, I guess we have to say. We're going to do some, uh, we're going to do a little bit of bouncing today, so if you have a, well, I guess if you have it either, whether it's paper or electronic, I hope you're good at bouncing, so uh, using the thumbs if you have electronic. Um, so this morning, we're not, we're not currently in a study series. We're going to talk about what I think will just be, um, be a, a one-week one deal, although I shouldn't say that, just a, just a one sermon. We talk about the, what we're talking about this morning, we actually talk about this almost constantly, whether we you know, name it or not, and I think you'll see what I mean. Uh, we're going to talk about um, what we have to talk about right now. And that is, today we're going to talk about justice. Um, right now, in our current cultural moment, of course, um, the language of justice is front and center uh, for us as a culture here in the United States, uh, particularly around the area of racial justice. Um, and so this theme is just uh, front and center right now. Um, in addition to that, right now, of course, in this um, really intense cultural moment where we are, uh, there's this pandemic that's going on with the coronavirus, and um, uh, wouldn't you know it that the theme, the topic, the question of justice um, now emerges in the context of the pandemic as well. Um, it has been noted that this virus is disproportionately affecting Many of those who are uh, among the poorest of the poor, uh, those who are um, economically and otherwise disadvantaged, not only in our culture, but around the world. And so that raises questions about justice. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing I have to say is um, uh, now, more recently, this, this accompanying theme is emerging more and more in the public discourse as it concerns the pandemic. Um, and I guess I'll just, I'll just categorize this secondary or um, cousin theme that's now been coupled together with the combination about um, the pandemic. Uh, and that is the theme of blame. Uh, it seems like as a people, and I'm focused on our culture here in the United States, but I think this is true beyond our culture. Um, there seems there tends to be this tendency now to blame. It's like who who are we going to blame for the pandemic? Who are we going to blame for the spread of the virus? Who are we going to blame for the quarantine policies that are issued or implemented? Who are we going to blame for you know those who are following those policies and those who are not? Um, some want to uh, blame the media. Some want to blame maybe a, a, you know those people of that political persuasion. Some people want to blame a certain race or culture somewhere in the world, um, perhaps the Chinese, someone to blame the president. Uh, this, this theme of blame that's just uh, not, I shouldn't say is emerging. I mean, it's, it's here, right? I mean, that's just so much. And, and let me just say, and this is what kind of gets us into our topic and some of the subtleties around the area of justice, um, blame itself is an implicit uh, invocation of justice, right? So, so, so when, when I say, when, when someone, let's just take out, the, let's take ourselves momentarily out of these grand issues, um, pandemic and so on. When someone, when someone approaches me and, and um, let's say, uh, points out a wrong that I've committed, when I begin to respond to that by saying, it's not my fault because they did something first, right? Or, or why would I listen to you when you never listened to me? Or why would I be kind to you when you were first unkind to me? You see what I mean? What's going on there? What's going on in that response? The logic that I'm invoking is a certain, it's, a, it's an implicit, without using the words, it's an implicit appeal to justice. See? And so even in this broad cultural conversation around the pandemic, um, the sub-theme of blame 
is in itself an appeal to justice, even without naming the issue. So we need to talk about this. Um, and I've said this before, uh, and I'm going to say it again because I like it. Uh, I think it's helpful. I hope you find it helpful. Um, I think we need to baptize our notion of justice. Uh, and I'm going to make the case for that today. Um, I've said that before. I'm saying it again today, but I don't think I've really gone into the, you know, like the spade work to establish that. Um, now, so when I, say, when I say that I recommend that we baptize our notion of justice, obviously I'm borrowing language and a symbol from the religious world, but I don't mean it in an exclusively religious way when I say it like that, that we need to baptize our notion of justice. But since we're talking about baptism as a symbol borrowed from religious life, let's talk about it for a minute. Um, baptism of course, at its core, is a symbol of death and then uh, emerging into new life. Uh, and let me be very careful to point out a distinction here. When we talk about baptism as a symbol of death and new life, uh, baptism is not a symbol of death and then resuscitation back to life. Rather, baptism is a symbol of passing through death and out the other side into new life, into a new kind of life. The biblical archetype for understanding baptism in that sense, you just think uh, 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 Israelites escaping from Pharaoh's clutches, right? After we're talking about the Exodus, escaping from Pharaoh's clutches, arriving at the, uh, at the, uh, at the Red Sea, and then passing through the Red Sea and out of the waters into new life, a new life of freedom, liberation, uh, brought about by the hand of God. That is the root symbol from which baptism is drawn. So the core meaning of the symbol of baptism is death, and then emerging out the other side of death into new life. Um, and I just want to say, uh, in a manner of speaking, then we could say, Anytime you or I or we collectively move from what is currently and into something new and better and more whole, we could say in a broad sense that that transition always includes a death. That if I'm going to move from where I am right now into something new and better, and more hopeful, and more whole, there's always going to be a death. That's true for us on, on a very personal, individual level. We're talking about our spiritual life. Um, you can even think about in the context of a marriage, you know, if my marriage is in a rough patch, in order for my marriage to move where it is right now into a new place of wholeness, health, new normal, something's got to die. Some, some current habits have to die. Some current norms in how we communicate and how, whatever. There's, in fact, a good marriage counselor, that's what a good marriage counselor is going to do. A good marriage counselor is going to walk you through a process of realizing the current patterns and norms that are actually destroying one another. And those things have to die in order to move from where we are to where we want to be. You could think about it in business. If a business is a wreck and in trouble, there's some stuff that's got to die, some habits, some norms, some culture, some modes of operating, whatever it is. Some stuff has to die and move to a new place. And so, you know, baptism is a religious symbol, but what it points to is actually a universal um, reality of life, the ultimate pattern. In fact, Jesus, when he was talking about his, at this time, his impending, his soon coming uh, crucifixion, he compared it to a seed. Unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it can't, you know, become what it's ultimately destined uh, to be. Even the creation itself bears out this pattern, right? In just a few months, we're going to come to the fall season, and the leaves are going to die, and they're going to fall to the ground. And then after the death of winter, spring is going to come, and there will emerge new life. And so this pattern is all around us in creation, in every mode of life, 
um, baptism being kind of the quintessential um, uh, uh, enacting of this universal reality. It is the pattern for transformation in life. And so, when it comes to our notion of justice and it comes to how we think about justice, I want to ask you to think in those terms. You say, well, that sounds kind of dramatic. And it's because I think what we're going to talk about this morning really is that, well, I don't know about dramatic, but it's that profound, it's that consequential. Uh, there's another word we could use, and I'm totally fine using this word as well. This word originally came from the realm of science and scientific uh, study, and, um, uh, and, but it now is used in lots of areas of life. We talk about a paradigm shift. And I think that that fits as well when it comes to how we think about justice and as we um, integrate ourselves into the consciousness of Christ and into the new normal of the kingdom of God, um, that term fits just as well. We need a paradigm shift in how we think about justice um, and how we understand what we mean, not just by the word, but what we mean by the neurons that fire in our minds and our imaginations when we think about justice and what justice is, okay? Um, so there's a little context. All right. Um, so justice, what do we mean by justice? What is the common usage of the term? And again, um, we're not just talking about words. We're talking about, you know, ideas and concepts. When you hear or when you say the word justice, what is the meaning that we think in our minds? What do we commonly mean by the word justice? And here I'll just borrow a few familiar usages of the term, just so we're kind of all on the same page. Uh, uh, for example, when we, when we talk about the Department of Justice uh, in our governmental apparatus, the Department of Justice, or the justice system, and we think about courtrooms and lawyers and judges and prisons, right? That's the, the justice system. Well, within this context, with this usage of the word, what, what do we mean by the word justice? Well, I would propose that essentially what we mean by the word justice in that context uh, is we mean uh, the, the application of punishment uh, for a wrong committed. Um, you do the crime, you do the time. That's justice, right? Um, why, why, why do we say things like you do the crime, you do the time? Well, it's because justice demands it. Uh, there has to be a punishment for this wrong that's been, been committed because we might say justice must be served. And so the punishment or the penalty, you know, the, I'm thinking now about the you know, the, the trial, uh, the guilty person is put on trial, and let's say that whole thing plays out. The jury comes back with a guilty verdict. The judge issues, you know, a good, long, hard prison sentence. And then after all of that, um, friends and family members of the victim of the crime come out and do a press conference, and you're going to hear the word justice spoken over and over again in those interviews with friends and family members of the victim, they're going to say, justice was served, or we got justice, right? So in that context, what's meant by the word justice is this idea of punishment meted, meted out uh, uh, as a consequence of a wrong done. And the idea, right, the, the, the symbol, the quintessential symbol for justice we refer to her as Lady Justice, and she's wearing a mask because we say justice is blind. And she's holding, what is she holding in her hands? Scales. Yeah, the scales of justice, right? And so in that context, when penalties, consequences, punishment is meted out, again, what the neurons that are firing in our minds is, okay, now that this sorry rotten dog is going to experience pain and difficulty and suffering, the scales are going to balance, right? That's the idea. That's what's going on. In our thinking, justice essentially in this context means getting even, payback, retribution. All of that to say, well, to ask a couple of questions. Uh, well, first, 
Is that the only way to think of what we mean when we invoke the notion of justice? Is that the only way to think of justice? And then as a secondary question to that, which is probably more compelling, is, is this the best way to think about justice? And then thirdly, is this, in fact, the divine notion of justice? Those are the questions that all of this um, puts on the table for us. And so I want to just, as we're now wading into these waters, I want to draw from um, a vivid portrayal in classic literature that many of you will be familiar with, where none other than Shakespeare himself wades into these waters and deals with these questions. And most pointedly, um, well, again, my take, and you're, I certainly invite you to engage in this, but um, uh, Shakespeare gives us in uh, his, his uh, play, The Merchant of Venice, he gives us a... Um, a fleshed out, humanized, dramatized, um, big old question, right? What is the relationship between justice and mercy that Shakespeare portrays in The Merchant of Venice? You may remember the story where Shylock is a, a Jewish man, apparently of some wealth, and he makes a loan to a character named Antonio, and when they initially make the contract, Shylock reluctantly, he's kind of an angry Jewish man, is suffering, you know, in that culture that the Jewish people are suffering uh, tremendous persecution from those around. But um, uh, so Shylock seems a little bit angry. So he says, okay, so what I'm going to take in collateral for this loan is if you fail to repay the loan, what I get is what? Anybody remember what Shylock says he gets as payment? A pound of flesh. That's right. So the story plays out, and of course, Antonio becomes destitute, and he is unable to repay the loan. And so Shylock takes Antonio to court. Have I got the character names right? Is that right? Antonio? Yeah, okay, all right. So, um, uh, so Shylock has a uh, court. We're going to the judge, and we're going to get the judge. I, uh, I'm going to go and, and make my case for the judge. You, you're, you can't repay. You're, you haven't repaid. You're not going to repay. I want my pound of flesh, Shylock says. And so this, this whole courtroom uh, scene plays out, and at one point, in the, as, the, as the dialogue intensifies, Shylock, eventually, he screams out, I crave the law, right? So he's saying, I want justice, and then a character named Portia, she's there posing as a, as a lawyer, uh, uh, and so eventually, Portia, in her uh, maneuvering in the court case, um, she eventually says, um, okay, Shylock, uh, you can have your pound of flesh. But, she says, just as you have insisted, I agree with you that justice must be served here. And so, she says, Shylock, you may have your pound of flesh and nothing more. If you spill one drop of Antonio's blood, then justice will be demanded of you. And with that, the whole thing just comes grinding to a halt. And she says, therefore, Jew, after he, Shylock realizes it's, a, it's an unanswerable paradox that he's been placed into, there's a great line from Portia. She says, therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, Consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. Mm. Mm. Now we have something really profound, everybody. See, because the reality is, whenever we're holding someone else accountable, responsible for some standard of justice, there's a certain rightness that we feel in that context but the truth of the matter is 
by that standard, as Shakespeare has said, and I think we're about to see from the, from, uh, the uh, revelation of the ancient prophets, by that standard, by that standard, that notion of justice, none of us would ever see salvation. And in fact, the opposite would be true. By that standard of justice, the world, in fact, humanity as a whole, would be locked in a cycle of unending retribution. And so what God has done through his self-revelation, again, all the way through the prophets and then ultimately glaringly unavoidable in his full self-revelation in Christ is that God has revealed that there is a completely different and alternative understanding of justice, and we're going to call it divine justice, the divine understanding of justice that God gives us. Um, it's found in Scripture and, again, as I said, ultimately revealed in Christ. And so with that said, let's just do a quick contrast. I don't know if you have the notes we normally distribute, um, but I think they'll be available after the fact online uh, if you don't. So here are some bullet points to kind of characterize what I'm calling our inherited notion of justice. Themes like punishment, penalty, revenge, getting even, even vengeance, which I guess is a synonym for, for revenge. This is our inherited notion of justice, and I don't need to tell you that under this notion of justice, uh, of course, throughout our history, all manner of violence and destructive has been committed. Under this notion of justice, wars have been fought, people's lives have been laid to waste, Cultures have been oppressed, bodies have been destroyed, and lives wasted. And we could point all the way from, you know, um, uh, from Darfur to um, the Hutus and the Tutsis to Iraq. Uh, we could, wherever we want to point, either further in history or closer to our own. In contrast, there is the notion that I'm referring to as divine justice. And divine justice is characterized by themes like healing, restoration, making things right for all, and quite frankly, simply love. Justice as love. Ultimately, everybody, in light of the full revelation of God, justice is nothing other than the embodiment of love. You could even think of your, your, yourself as a human being. And here for these purposes, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna characterize you in two parts. There's the outer you, the tangible you, and then there's the inner you, the intangible you. There's you as body and you as soul. Well, you could think of justice and love uh, along that paradigm, right? That, that just as the soul is that which animates and propels the body in, a, in acting in the world, in the same way, it is love that enacts justice, that justice is the body of love. Justice is love expressing itself through a human life. It is to say, and this is when we're going to make, make the case for this, but any sort of antagonism between our concepts of justice and, let's say, mercy, um, that antagonism actually results from our own human cultural construction of justice, just as we've determined the mean, in the way that we've determined the meaning of justice. And that antagonism does not come from the reality of justice itself. And as we're about to see, that antagonism between justice on the one hand and mercy on the other, the only reason those are ever pitted against one another is not from the full divine revelation, but from our human construction of what justice is. Again, in an effort to summarize what we're about to look at, human justice is retributive, quantitative, and destructive of relationships. And in contrast, divine justice is restorative, qualitative, and it builds relationships. 
And again, once again, just to give you another handy kind of tether to maintain this distinction, think about a healthy father in a healthy household. What does that father want for his family? And I, you know, I'm speaking in my gender terms, parent. Um, what does that parent want for his or her household? They want wholeness, health for all, that everyone in the household is treated with dignity and respect, even the one or the ones who perhaps might be in the wrong in a particular instance, right? That's, that's, the, that's the justice of a healthy father. And this is the justice, the notion of justice that the ancient Hebrew prophets bring out again and again and again. And here are some examples. First of all, we're going to juxtapose justice with violence. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. Check this out. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's again this household notion, this loving parent notion, that kind of thing. And the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. Listen to this. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but heard a cry. And always, as always in Scripture, the cry represents um, the cry from someone who is being oppressed, crushed under the boot of a dominant group. So notice, would you please, the contrast here between justice and bloodshed. Isn't that interesting? See, because, again, according to our human construction of justice, sometimes it's not until I see blood that I identify justice, right? We need some justice here, and the way we're going to achieve justice is when somebody else bleeds. See, that's our human construction of justice, and we need to be baptized, let that idea die and pass through into something new. Because look at what the prophet says. The prophet says, speaking on behalf of God, I was looking for justice, but what I saw was bloodshed. So what is the divine saying? That wherever there's violence, there is not justice. Why? Because, and you, you have access to this as a loving, healthy parent. Just think about your children. Wherever, wherever there is fighting and quarreling between the children in my, my household, there is not justice. Now, what do I mean by justice? When I say justice in that context, what I mean is healing, wholeness, restoration, everything being right for all. Uh, and I have to, we have to do this. It's kind of nerdy, but we have to do this. Um, many times when the English translation of the Bible uses the word justice, not always, but many times, the Hebrew word is mishpat. And we've talked about that before. But mishpat, um, uh, it, it's fine. Justice is a perfectly fine way to translate mishpat. But for, for us, we run into problems because we tend to think about the word justice exclusively in what we call the justice system, where the whole thing is about punishment and so on. Uh, now, too many rabbit trails, but let me just say, I realize that there are many participants in the justice system who see justice far more broadly than simply meeting out punishment. I'm just making a crude uh, characterization, I suppose. Okay. Um, but the Hebrew idea of mishpat has to do with, uh, uh, you can think about, um, uh, think about a family farm where everything is in its place, everything is functioning properly, everyone has enough, everyone is treated with dignity and respect, where the weakest in the household uh, receive the care and the compassion from the others in the household. I mean, that's, that's mishpat. And so uh, in, this, in this instance, the word that's being translated justice here is mishpat. So the prophet is saying on behalf of God, I was looking for mishpat in my world. And what I saw instead was bloodshed. And so wherever there is violence, there is no justice. And again, notice the, and this will be important later, notice the, um, the parallelism between justice and righteousness. I looked for justice. I didn't see it. I, instead, I saw bloodshed. I looked for righteousness. I didn't see it. Instead, I heard a cry. Again, the cry of the oppressed. Somebody is being stepped on, which means somebody is stepping on 
someone else. I was looking for righteousness, but I didn't see that. Instead, I saw people stepping on one another. Profound, huh? Isaiah 59, same idea. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness and on down the line. No one brings suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. The way of peace, as shalom, they do not know. And there is no justice, no mishpat in their paths. Their roads they've made crooked. No one walks in them, uh, knows peace. Therefore, check it out. Therefore, justice is far from us. Because our hands are defiled with blood and on and on and on. Therefore, this, this divine justice of healing and wholeness is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. Again, justice and righteousness in this poetic parallelism, they, they repeat one another. This is, this is synonymous parallel parallelism, but with a difference. They're not exactly the same, but they work hand in hand. Righteousness and justice. Shalom. And mishpat. And here again, violence is set in juxtaposition against justice. And I think that comes as a bit of a jolt for us. Again, one more, Isaiah 16. Uh, when the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, and marauders have vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, has said. God's steadfast love uh, in the tent of David and on it shall sit in faithfulness a ruler who seeks justice and is swift to do what is right. So once again, notice that when oppression, destructive, destructive, destruction and violence are removed from the equation, then there is justice, mishpat. Why? Because mishpat is the absence of that kind of destruction. So, in summary, what we see from the prophets, and this is just a quick tour, but again and again and again, what we see from the prophets is that justice and violence have nothing in common. And that's, again, that's surprising and slippery and elusive for us, admittedly. Um, but the bottom line is, when violence takes place, justice is absent. <laughs> But wait a minute, somebody might complain. What if the violence is justified? Right? Sometimes, so isn't, it, doesn't it, isn't it true that sometimes violence is justified? Can I say, say something? Um, I want to say always, but I have to say almost always because I guess there are sociopathic variations on this. But almost all violence is justified, at least in the mind of the perpetrator. Right? That's the problem with just war theory. Everybody believes their wars are just. Just war theory is actually not a limitation on war, ultimately. Just war theory simply means that, oh, we just need to justify it before we do it. Well, we can do that, no problem. That's what we always do, right? So all, I want to say all, okay, all violence is justified, at least by someone. And again, you know, if you're thinking about uh, living, breathing, accessible examples, we first meet young Saul of Tarsus in the early chapters of the book of Acts completely on a mission uh, of brutal violence against Jewish worshipers of Jesus. And he was convinced that his cause was just. He was convinced that his cause was righteous. Right? And then he met Jesus. <laughs> All right. So, um, so that's justice and violence. Again, Divine justice in juxtaposition with violence. Um, and I've talked about this before, but let's look a little bit at justice and righteousness. And just to say, as we've already seen, that in the prophets, justice and righteousness almost always appear in tandem with one another. And here's just an explicit example from Proverbs 8. He says, I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. Again, a poetic parallelism. Uh, these two ideas, justice and righteousness, uh, at the same time repeating one another and expanding on one another's uh, meaning. But the point here 
is to recognize that justice, like righteousness, is a way of walking. Look what it says. I walk in the way of righteousness. I walk along the paths of justice. This is not, you know, it's okay for us to think in in concepts. um, And I think, I mean, actually essential, important that we think in concepts. But ultimately, for sure for the ancients, this is not an abstract concept. This This is a way of living, of acting, of doing divine justice embodying wholeness and restoration in the world around us. And so it comes as no surprise then when we fast forward and we get to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says words that are familiar to many of us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, again, for a lot of us, we think, yeah, we got to be righteous. You know, don't drink or cuss or chew or run with girls who do and, you know, that kind of thing. No, 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 no. Again, it's poetic parallelism. Seek first the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? He means what the prophets mean when they say mishpat, when they say shalom. He means a world that is turned right side up of wholeness, equality, peace, shalom for all. Seek that, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. What is righteousness in that context? It is the right-wising, the right-making of the world. Jesus is drawing on this ancient prophetic tradition where justice and righteousness are in tandem and we're talking about a reordered, healed world. That's what's going on here. Thirdly, I want to bring back together justice and mercy. Uh, Let's just use this, Zechariah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. And there, again, judgment is mishpat. Uh, Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Everybody, would you please recognize here that for the prophet... um, uh, justice, mercy, kindness, those are s- virtual synonyms. They are parallels that expand on one another. They are not in opposition. Is everybody tracking here? See, because for us, for us, when we're, when we're working from our inherited cultural notion of justice, it's like we're faced with an either or. In this situation, do I apply justice or do I apply mercy? See, that dichotomy, that, um, I'm, I used the word antagonism a minute ago. I don't know if that works for you, but whatever. To think of those two as in contrast, that's because we think in the way that we've in, uh, inherited, the way culture has taught us to think. But when we think along with the prophets, listen to, what, listen to what Zechariah is saying, a heart, soul, a mind, imagination flooded with God. He says, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy. To one another. What does that mean? It means that justice, true justice, mishpat, is shot through with kindness and mercy. So you want justice in the world? Then flood the world with mercy. You want justice in the world? Then flood the world with kindness. Is everybody tracking? See, that's what I mean when I say we need to baptize. See, we need to baptize our notion of justice. Because if we're going to get there, if that's going to become our mother tongue, then stuff's going to have to die. Am I right? Some stuff is going to have to die. If our mother tongue is going to be the same as the old prophet's imagination, then there's going to be some stuff that's got to die, flat out die. You can call it paradigm shift if you want. That sounds nice and fluffy. But really what's going on here is it's got to die. That old idea, that inherited idea of justice just flat out has to die. If we're going to enter into the consciousness of Christ, it's got to die. And something new and better comes alive. And so, everybody, in short, when we say that God, this God, the one true God, Yahweh, when we say that this God is a God of justice, what we mean is that this God is a God who heals, who restores, who protects, who liberates, who is rich in kindness and overflowing with mercy.
That's what we mean when we say that this God is a God of justice. Is everybody tracking? Um, let me go, let me go kind of big for a minute, see if this works for you. Uh, you ever think about this? Zeus died, right? Like the supreme God of the Greeks during their heyday, um, nobody worships Zeus anymore. Zeus, Zeus died. He's just, he's just gone. <laughs> how did, how did Zeus die? Where did he go? How does a god die? Um, what happened to Zeus that ended his career as the supreme god of the Greeks? <laughs> oh, this sounds like a stupid question. Stay with me. This is going somewhere. I hope it works for you. Uh, I'll give an attempted answer in that in a minute, but let me ask another couple more questions. Um, Jupiter died. What happened to Jupiter? Nobody worships Jupiter anymore. Um, where did Jupiter go? What happened to Jupiter that his career as the supreme god of the Romans ended, came to an end? I mean, Jupiter was on top. He was the supreme god of the supreme empire of the world as the chief god of the Romans. But Jupiter's gone. Jupiter is dead. Nobody worships Jupiter anymore. The Greek Empire came and went, and Zeus came and went with it. Jupiter came and went. The Roman Empire came and went, and Jupiter came and went with the Roman Empire. In contrast, Yahweh is still alive and well. Yahweh is worshipped and followed, pursued by people groups all over the world for millennia now, thousands of years. Let's go back like to Abraham, at least. Um, People all over the world at various times in various places in various conditions and in various contexts, various tribes and tongues have and still do worship Yahweh, initially revealed as the God of Israel and now revealed to the entire world through Jesus Christ. How is it, why is it that Zeus and Jupiter and many other deities, um, rise and have their heyday and then falter and fall away and essentially die. Why is it that so many gods come and go and die while this God, Yahweh, has endured? And I want to say... In a word, the answer to that question is justice. Because see, the career of Zeus was laser focused on getting the Greeks to the top of the heap as it relates to the heap of humanity. That was Zeus's job. That was Zeus's career. And as long as Zeus succeeded in his job, and as long as the Greeks were on top of everybody else, Zeus was a supreme God. He was the supreme God of the supreme people. But when the Greek empire crumbled, Zeus died. You could say the same thing for Jupiter. Jupiter's job was to usher the Romans to the top of the heap. And he did that for a while, in a manner of speaking. One way or the other, the Romans got to the top of the heap. It was the world's uh, superpower, the Roman Empire. And as long as the Romans were on top, guess what? Jupiter was on top. He was the god of all the gods. But when the empire crumbled, Jupiter died. Everybody. Why has Yahweh not died? 
Yahweh has been the God of a number of human societies that are no more. And yet around the world, we still worship Yahweh. And here's the difference. Because for a God whose job is to bring a people to the top and keep a people on the top, all that's required for that God to die is that their enterprise needs to crumble and that God dies. But for a God whose heartbeat is justice, that God can never die unless and until the cry of justice is removed from the human heart. As long as the human heart has at its core the cry for justice, then this God will live and his career will continue on. And this God is a God of justice. Empires come and go. Humanity plays its game of who's on top. But this God endures because he's a God of justice. He's always on the side of those on the bottom. He's always on the side of the oppressed. This God is a God of justice. Are we tracking? I realize that if these ideas are fresh or new, um, and you come in culturally baptized, it's tough. I mean, this is a big, that's why I say paradigm shift, baptism, death. That's why I used all those ideas. Because this doesn't just go, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking all along. That's like, this is, no, this is the opposite. This is like, ooh, I'm going to have to chew on that a little bit. Okay, great, chew on it. But just understand that we're not the first we're not the first people to grapple with these questions. Um, here's a couple of quotes from some names more recent uh, that might be familiar to you. Here's one from old Ben Franklin. He says, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Hmm. Hmm. Almost sounds like one of the old prophets. Here's one from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, we are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. No. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Wow. What's he speaking from? He's speaking from the imagination of the ancient Jewish prophets. No, 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 no. We're not here just to bandage the wounds of those who are underneath the boot of oppression. No, we're called to rise up in the imitation of this God of ours and work toward the transformation of the world. Work toward the transformation of systems of injustice that oppress people who aren't like us. Is everybody tracking? So, so justice. Um. I hope that this at least gives you enough to begin to chew on and meditate on. And I, I mean it. I want to ask you to sit with this and let it soak in you. Um, and again, you know, there's all kinds of juxtaposition that we could bring in here. And this conversation could go on and on and on and on and on. But I'll just say... Among the, uh, there's all these ideas, right? Like, like we, I think for, for many of us, um, we, we, we coddle ourselves with the language of opportunity. And we say, because everyone has the same opportunity, we're just. Our society is just because everyone has the same opportunity. Let me ask you something. Do you say that about your household as a healthy parent? Well, I know, I know that child of mine is getting kind of thin and frail because he hadn't eaten in weeks. But I set out the bacon and eggs. He had a chance to make his own breakfast. Is that what you say as a healthy parent? Not very long. We put you, we put you away if you talk like that. Right? You don't, you don't say that about our family. You see, so, so what the prophets are saying 
and again, right on through to Jesus. It's about the imitation of this God. It's about imitating this God of justice and liberation and healing and restoration and embodying his heart in the flesh and blood of our own humanity. Uh, I have a, um, well, I have a, a couple of friends uh, in the Orthodox Church who inspire me a great deal. And uh, man, you know, it's classic, it's classic theology uh, for us to affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That's classic Orthodox theology about who Christ is. Fully man and fully God. Um, and I'll just say for me, perhaps not for you, but for me, generally speaking, that affirmation is, I'll just say, academic, right? Like, I'm supposed to know that, right? Because I want to be, I want to be a, you know, a, I want to be orthodox in my faith, and so I need to affirm the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ. Um, but one of my orthodox friends, uh, he said, you know, he said for the ancient church fathers who hammered out all this for us, it wasn't academic for them at all. They weren't, they weren't saying something academic. They, they were declaring something embodied something real. When they said that Jesus is fully man and fully God, what they meant is that Jesus fully reveals exactly what God is like, and Jesus fully reveals exactly what a true human is like. That in Jesus, we see the full self-revelation of God. Mercy, embracing the outcast, enduring injustice with only forgiveness and non-retaliation, yada, 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 yada. In Jesus, we see the full self-revelation of what God is like. And in Jesus, we see the unvarnished reality of what a true human being looks like. What humanity, by God's design, is intended to be. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so... The application in this context, well, the application of that is very, very broad, but, but in this context then, to enact justice, to embody justice, to work for real experienced justice in our world, in our society, is to imitate God, to function as the living, breathing imitation of this God of enduring Justice, mishpat, healing, wholeness. Amen? Let's pray.